Good morning and happy Father's Day, and uh, it's great to be with you this morning, church. Some of you haven't got that joke yet. You need to get your phone out and Google Switzerland's flag, and then it'll get you there. It'll get you there. <laughs> I, uh, I love Father's Day, um, but it's interesting. I was thinking about how many holidays we celebrate in a year. Because, uh, you know, I was getting ready uh, for the weekend and I was thinking about how many of our weekends are connected to a holiday, a special occasion. Often it influences the conversations that we have at church and uh, that we're having as a, a family. And um, for a moment, I started to get a little frustrated. I was like, man, it's like, it's like someone else is always telling us what we should be thinking about or talking about. And, and then I remembered that God is a God of celebrations and festivals and remembering. And, uh, and it's good for us to come around uh, special days and give honor to where honor is due. And, and uh, so it's worth it doing these things and Mother's Day and Veterans Day and Father's Day and Easter and Christmas and on and on through we go. It's great to remember who the Lord is, what he's done, and to give honor to people who have served or been in our lives. And, and uh, so I'm excited uh, for today. Um, I love uh, Father's Day, uh, but Father's Day is an interesting day because it brings up for me a lot of emotion and thought and uh, a lot of uh, uh processing because my father's situation growing up wasn't always the best. And here's the thing I know. The word father is just not a neutral word. No one can say the word father or think about the idea of father and feel nothing. You will feel something whether uh, you'd like to admit it or not. And even those of you who would say, I don't feel anything, it's probably you working hard to build a wall that isn't a healthy thing and you're feeling something in there because we feel something when it comes to the idea of Father's and Father's Day. And, and I was thinking about my first Father's Day experience. My first son, uh, Brayden, he was born right before Father's Day uh, in June. And uh, he was born June 8th, and Father's Day was like June 15th or something that year. And so uh, my first Father's Day uh, was, was exciting because I had a newborn who was just bright, smack fresh out of the oven. And, and uh, July hits, June and July, and I'm at summer camp, and I have this epiphany. I'm running a summer camp for a bunch of teenagers, and I've been responsible for other people's kids for a long time as a youth pastor, but now suddenly I had my own. And, and the stakes had changed for me a little bit. And I began thinking about this idea that I really didn't have any kind of indication of how to do this father thing. I wasn't sure how to do it. And so we've been in a series in 2 Timothy and we called it Equipped and we're talking about tools. And today I'm gonna move away from 2 Timothy a little bit to honor fathers, but I still wanna talk about some tools. I'm gonna give you some tools today. But one of the tools that, uh, that I started thinking about as we were uh, diving into this idea of Father's Day was the idea that there's not really a clear map on how to do fathers and fatherhood. There's not really a clear picture, like a, a right way to do it. When they put that baby in the car seat and let me snap him into the chair and drive away, they didn't leave me a list of instructions and where to go. And I started thinking about how nice it would have been to have a map. And, and now for some of you, if you were uh, born after about 1985, you might not have ever seen one of these, right? But this is an actual map, right? This is what maps looked like before maps looked like Hey, phone, tell me how to get to that place, right? We used to have to get maps out and look at things. I remember um, I, I sold books door to door one summer and I drove across the nation and I had to ha get maps out to figure, I used to have to pull, this is crazy guys, I used to have to pull over on the side of the road and pull out a map and try to figure out where I was. And then from there I had to try to figure out where I was going and then I had to actually apply that logic and see if I ended up in the place, Woo where I was going. You know what used to happen? People used to pull into places like gas stations and, and, and stores, and they used to talk to other humans and say things like, hey, I'm trying to find the place that I'm going. And then people would be kind to one another and say, oh, I know where that place is. You gotta drive down till you see the blue house, then take a right, and then there'll be a big tree, take a left, and then you'll be at the place. We used to have to interact with each other. See, the beauty of a map is a map is created by someone who's been there before. They've seen the landmarks, the road marks, the path, where to go, how to get there. And so they have created for you a tool that if you follow it, in theory, you should be able to end up at your desired 
destination. And that's the power of a map. And I got to thinking about this whole thing about fatherhood. And I started thinking, you know what would be great? Is if there was a roadmap. If there was a path, if it was clear, if somehow someone who had been there before had painted a picture so that I could pull over and figure out, well, I ended up here. Come on, dads. And I want to be here. And so now I got to navigate some things to get here. Redirecting, redirecting, right? And so we try to figure those things out. But the first time being a dad was real for me was that summer camp, 2008. And I remember walking around the camp just thinking, I am woefully unprepared for fatherhood. I am woefully unprepared. All the pictures of good dads that I have in my head are things I watched on TV, and I'm old enough now to know that that's not real. (laughs) How in the world does someone actually do this? I don't even know what a dad is supposed to do. See, in my life, I had two dads. I had a biological dad who, when I was nine months old, he bounced I didn't see him again uh, my whole life until I was five. Uh, At five, he kidnapped me, uh, kept me for three days, and then I think he realized that a five-year-old was not as fun as he thought a five-year-old was gonna be, so he dropped me off at my grandmother's house, and then I never saw him again. So my picture of uh, what a dad is from early on was was someone who was absent, not present, and, uh, and immature, irresponsible. My stepdad, who I call dad, Stepped into the scene when I was quite young, about one years old. He married my mom when I was nine, so they dated. He was in my life, though, most of my life, and I called him dad. But uh, he, he, he stepped up, stepped in, um, cared for us. But my stepdad was a, what I like to call a caholic. Um, sometimes he was an alcoholic. Sometimes he was a workaholic. Uh, there was always something, but he was a colic. And so we, uh, we had uh, addiction as part of our life. And uh, when he was on or off, depending on where he was, his personality shifted based on those things and was wildly inconsistent. Sometimes he was uh, a terror and someone to be incredibly afraid of. Um, sometimes he would gush and be kind and it was weird. And so you didn't know what was going to happen because the shoe would, would drop and things were inconsistent. So the picture that I had of fatherhood was really challenging growing up. And so we go into a church for the first time later in life, and they say, we're going to pray. And when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. And I was like, whoa, slow down there. I'm not sure what that means. Does that mean absentee landowner? Does that mean shift from one emotional extreme to another? Does that mean be afraid, be in terror? And it wasn't until later as someone began to articulate the the loving kindness of a heavenly father and began to articulate that you have a father in heaven who intended for you to be here and has a plan and a destiny for your life that I was ever open to a conversation about any kind of fathering. So it took a long time to figure that out and to walk that out. And I was 2008, already had been pastoring for a while and for the first time now a father trying to figure out, I still don't have one of these. I'm desperate to figure out how to do this. And it was the first time I ever went to a a, a person. I went to an older father who was there. And I wasn't there looking to be fathered. I was there trying to figure out how to become one. And I said, I don't know what to do. I'm going to screw this up. He said, you're right. (laughs) And that's okay, because we all start there. I was desperate to figure out how to become one. We all have a story. We've all been affected by our father. Some of us have had great examples of a father, and some of us have had devastating disasters. Some of us are dads now, and some of us have actually avoided that role because we're not sure how to do it. I remember being at my friend's wedding, and uh, you know, I was still in college, and he was getting married, and I remember talking to him about how crazy it is to get married and that someday he's going to be a dad, and he looks at me, and he goes, oh, I'm never doing that. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, do you know how messed up I am and how messed up this world is? I'd never bring a kid into this world. And I remember being shocked at his response. And I was like, wow. And I was like, you're probably right. You shouldn't do that with that, with that attitude, right? And, uh, and lo and behold, he did devastate and wrecked his marriage. And eventually his life spiraled. And um, you know, it became some of a, of a self-fulfilling prophecy that he spoke that way about himself. But it's just true. We all have dad baggage and we're not sure. And, and, and oftentimes... We're looking for a map. 
of what to do and where we should go. And then we look around at our current climate and our current culture and our current picture of the world and we ask questions like, what is a dad's role and what should a dad do? And is a dad necessary or not necessary? And what's the impact of a dad? What's the boundaries of a dad? And you know, we've seen so many abuses of strong men that we are sometimes afraid to interact and to, and to trust that. And it creates this climate that's tense. And then we come to a place like this and we're like, so where's the roadmap? Is there a list of directions in here? I know there's like 10 commandments and I know there's like qualifications for elders and deacons, but where is the roadmap of how to be a dad and what's expected of a dad and of a father? Where is it? We understand that Jesus does some tremendous things like prays and says, when you pray, say our father. And he uses the term Abba, which is like daddy. It's personal and it's intimate. We understand that God identifies himself as a father. And then we understand that God created us in his image. And if God identifies himself as a father and we're created in his image, then there's something about that dynamic that we have to get our minds around. And so we go to the word and we say, okay, is there a roadmap in here of how to pull this off? It's a hard thing whenever, especially in a one-off kind of idea, we talk about families. Because families are all different. No two families are the same. Family is a, 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 a difficult term to define. You know what's hilarious about the term family? I went to dictionary.com this week to just define family and give you some definitions. There's over 20 different definitions for family. Can I just be real for you with you for a second? If you have 20 definitions for a word, there's no definition for that word. At some point, 20 definitions means no definition. Family is this weirdly undefinable term. My favorite one, uh, or one of my favorite ones, it was like number nine or 10. It said, family is a group of related things or people. Related things or people. So apparently if I have 10 pencils, I have a family of pencils. I'm not sure how that works. A group of related things or people is a family. So since family is so hard to define and so messy, it's really challenging to figure out who are we connected to and how are we connected? And if the scriptures say that God is a father, we're created in his image, what does that even look like? And so I love this picture of family. Uh, uh, Pastor Andy Stanley said it this way. And he said, family is who you're willing to serve. He said, family is who are you willing to serve? And I love that definition of family. The people in your life that you're willing to serve are your family. You're willing to take your strength, your power, and your energy and give it to them for their benefit so that they're blessed. That's who you have made family. Now, Paul writes about this idea of serving one another and serving each other as family. He talks about it time and time again. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to be in 1 Thessalonians here in just a moment if you want to get ahead of me. I'm going to get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And Paul talks about how we serve one another as a family. And he actually talks about a mothering and fathering role in there. And it's pretty amazing. But Paul's writing to this church in Thessalonica. And it's a church that he started. He got it up and running. And this church in Thessalonica is a very interesting church. Paul went there with his ministry team. He's got a couple guys with him and they're serving and they're living in the community. And then he starts to preach. And I think it's Acts 17, tells the story of being in Thessalonica. But, but check this out. He only preached there for three weeks. Three weeks, he goes to the, uh, 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 the, uh, uh, the service there and, and preaches and then they kick him out. They don't want him there anymore. And in that three weeks, he actually has some people come to know Jesus. Three weeks, that's it. He's lived there a little bit longer. If you get into the story, you can see he, he's earned some income while he's there. If you didn't know this, Paul had a trade. Um, he built tents and was probably a tanner of some kind, probably dealt with leather and, uh, and, and that kind of materials. But uh, he's in Thessalonica for three weeks. And for three weeks, he's preaching. And it says during that time, there were some Jews, some Gentiles, and specifically some prominent women who came to know Jesus. It says they experienced the power of the Holy Spirit and they became followers of Jesus. And then after that three weeks, they, there's a riot and they kick him out. 
So eventually he sends Timothy, Timothy is protege that we've been talking about, to kind of go and hang out at the church and help them a little bit. But I want you to catch this. This is a church with only about three weeks of teaching. And then they have to figure it out. They don't have the Bible, hasn't been written yet. At least two-thirds of them don't subscribe to the Torah, the Old Testament law. It's no set of uh, rules or boundaries for them. And they're just starting out because they've met Jesus, experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, and they're trying to live as followers of Jesus, but they don't know what they're doing. It's messy and it's confusing and they're figuring it out. And Paul writes them a letter. And he writes them a letter to encourage them because he's heard of how they're doing. And he's heard that they're struggling with figuring out how are we, and, and we're this hodgepodge mix of different cultures and backgrounds and genders, and we're all together. And then we have leadership that looks like some are Jewish and some are not Jewish. And there's these prominent women who are leading and they're making a, a, a big impact in this small church that's now exploded. And we become this new kind of unit, this family structure. And what does family do? How do we behave and what are the rules and how does it supposed to look? And so Paul writes this incredible uh, letter to Thessalonica and he genuinely loves these people. It's all throughout the letter how much and how deeply he cares for them. And he's trying to coach them. He's trying to give them a roadmap on how this whole thing is supposed to work. And so we pick up in 1 Thessalonians chapter two. I'm gonna start in verse six. And he's going to start by talking about a little bit about himself and then how to relate to one another. And in verse six, he says, we were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. Paul sets it up. He says, we were self-sufficient. We didn't come here to get to be rock stars, right? He didn't storm into town and they didn't have a big kickoff concert and de- you know, they weren't like showing up. There wasn't a, there wasn't a big uh, gathering. This isn't Justin Bieber coming to town and strolling through and everyone's like, woo, right? Did I age myself with Bieber? Who's cooler than Bieber now? That's the last like, young person that I can remember. Anyone? All right, help me. <laughs> Kendrick Lamar, is that a young guy, right? I heard his name. <laughs> right? It's not some celebrity. Let's go, about, let's go forward. It's not Oprah in town, right? <laughs> Paul just shows up. He says there was no fanfare. Nobody, we didn't bring a, a sense of you owe us. We just showed up and we worked hard. We could have we said, hey, we're followers, apostles of Christ, and you guys owe us as you become followers of Jesus. But we didn't play that card. We just showed up and worked hard. We weren't here to leech. We were here to add value. Mm. He's setting up a picture of doing life in community and doing life as a family and serving one another. And he says, our premise from the beginning was never to go in in the sense of entitlement. It was always to come in and say, how can we give ourselves away to one another? It's a powerful way to set up the story. And then he says, verse seven, and I love this. So moms, you're not left out today. Don't worry about it. He says, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. He says, we didn't come in as rock stars saying, give us, give us, give us, give us. We came in as mothers caring as you would for a little child. I love that he says we mothered you. He establishes there's a nurturing, mothering care that's part of every family dynamic and relationship. And let's just be real for a moment, men. Men mother too. We nurture too. We give care also. It's not emasculating to be nurturing and caring and to do that thing. And some of us guys are like, can't do that. Paul said, we came in and we established a relationship like a mother would establish a relationship. It was important and it was part of the whole thing. Verse eight, I love this thing. I love this verse. This is so good. He says, we loved you so much. This is Paul. This is not like funny to think of Paul. Paul's like always just on, a, on this kick when he writes. Paul's just this totally amazing uh, experience so much. And suddenly he's, he's tender in this moment. And he says, we came in like a mother and we cared for you and we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Can you imagine if this was our heart? 
If this got into a church, if this got into a community of believers, that we love the people in our town, in our neighborhoods, in our community so much, we love them so much that we were delighted not to just do life, but to also share our story. Share our story and do life with somebody. Paul says, this is a picture of how much you can love someone, that you get into their world, you do life with them, and you don't, it's not just a story in the gospel that's powerful, but it's also sharing and blending our lives together. That this is the heart of what God designed us to do as a people. We're gonna do life together. We're gonna be in each other's world. And we're gonna share the story. A couple weeks ago, we talked about not being ashamed of the gospel. Paul writing to Timothy. And we talked about how important it is to tell our story and that the gospel is uh, uh, for us, our story of what Jesus has done in our life. And we talked about, can you imagine, who do you love so much that you would wanna make sure that you said, not only did I do life with you, but I shared my story of what God's done with you. Some of us, if I said, do you love your neighbor? You go, oh yeah, I love my neighbor. Really, do you love them enough to do life with them and to share your story of what God's done? Do you love your coworkers? Oh yeah, I love my coworkers. Really? Have you loved them enough to do life with them and to share the story? Paul says, this is a picture of community and family who I'm willing to serve. And I just dove in. Paul says, I just dove in. I just loved you with everything I had so I could do life with you and tell you the story of who God is. And I love that it's not just this angle of, I loved you so much that I shared the gospel with you and I bounced. There is a connection of I shared the gospel, but I also shared life. That that authentic love wasn't just, because we get, come on church, we get mixed on this all the time. I just want to tell them the truth. I said it nice, so it was in love. Paul's like, no, 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 love is I want to get into your world. I just don't want to throw the truth at you and run. Truth, just like anything, anything gets chucked at you, it hurts. Sand. But if I slow down and present it in love and do life with you, it's tremendous power. Tremendous power. I don't know if I need to say anything else. Maybe if we got that, we'd get this right. But crazy, authentic, loving relationships start here. If these two things aren't happening, then we're not being family. We're not inviting people in. Verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work day and night in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. He reiterates, surely you remember, we worked. We put the work in. We earned it. We earned credibility. And here's the thing, hard work earns credibility. You respect people who serve and who work hard and who contribute. People who come in as intellectual experts and just dump and then run, that's not, that's not, we don't respect and respond to that. That's not empowering. That's not doing life together. But he says, we worked, we served. We were not there to be consumers. We were there to be co-laborers. He sets up, this is what the family looks like. This is what we do. You bring what you have to the table. Some of you are frustrated in interpersonal relationships and family relations because somebody's missed this part that they're supposed to bring their energy and their power and their work to the table also. Just like, because come on, some of you are givers and then you get around people and they're like, sweet, I love being around givers because I just get all the time. And eventually the dynamic gets all out of whack and you get frustrated. Paul's like, we didn't, we didn't risk that. We brought what we had to the table. We brought our strength. Now listen, there's all se- always seasons where we need to lean into each other's strength. I'm not diminishing that by any stretch, but I am saying the core of this healthy family dynamic he's creating is we showed up and we worked hard. And you remember that, right? Don't forget that, that while we were there doing life together, while we were there presenting the gospel, we were working side by side, presenting the truth in love. Verse 10, we're almost there. He says, you are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. I love this because he's about to shift. He started, he started his analogy talking about we mothered you, we worked hard. He's about to talk about we fathered you. So we're gonna land there. And he says, but I want you to catch this thing. Before I kind of lean into this idea that we fathered you, you actually saw this, your witnesses. And so is God of what we did. Now, this is important because the next thing he's gonna do is he's gonna say some things. And words are important. Words are huge and, uh, and words are powerful. 
But when our words and our actions don't line up, it's confusing, guys. Dads, can I just talk to the dads for a second? When your words and your actions don't line up, it's confusing. It's confusing. It's very difficult for young eyes to see behaviors and then hear things. You know the most dangerous phrase in the world? Do as I say, not as I do. Maybe it's not the most dangerous, but it's pretty dangerous. Why? Because there's an implication that it's okay for there to be a disconnect between my behavior and my words and my stated principles. And it's confusing and it creates rifts and it is damaging. Paul says, you saw it before God and before you that we lived consistently. And I love this. He says, holy, righteous, and blameless we were. Now that's tough. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty close to perfect. So let me break that down for you a little bit. He doesn't say we were perfect. The, the word, word there, blameless, essentially says you could not charge us in court. Like if I, you can't say I'm lying, right? And so he's saying we weren't perfect because dad, no one's perfect. Can we just be honest, right? Jesus was the only perfect man. We have a perfect father in heaven. We are not gonna be perfect on this. But he says, you watched the way we worked before you and before God that our best effort was given to be consistent whether we were preaching, whether we were working, whether we were just doing life together, I was the same guy here as I am here. The principles I espoused, I lived. And when those things get out of whack, it's devastating in a family. It's devastating in a family. Paul's stressing, don't let anyone accuse you. Don't let anyone say, you can come in and say, do this, but then they do that. That's not how the family works. You've gotta be consistent. Talk is not cheap, but if your actions don't live up to your talk, forget about it. He's like, you've got to be consistent. You saw and so did God how we acted. Verse 11, here we go. It says, for we, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. And he's about to do something here. He's about to give us a picture of a map that we haven't seen anywhere else yet in scripture this way. A definition of how a father deals with his children. This is a beautiful picture. He goes, listen, you know, and you saw that we dealt with you as a father deals with his own children. What does that look like? Verse 12, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. You want the roadmap of trying to get this fatherhood thing down, gentlemen? Here's what it looks like. Be encouraging, be comforting, and urge. Urge, that word urge, we'll get into that. Urge those that are following you to live lives worthy of God. Pull them forward towards their destiny and calling in God. It's this roadmap to biblical fatherhood. So let's break it down a little bit. The first thing he says is encouraging. Encouraging. You know what? I don't care how old you get. There is something powerful when we really feel encouraged. When someone speaks something encouraging into our lives, when someone says, man, there's, there's, you're definitely made for this. You're doing great. There's nothing. I, I, I'm so impressed. You're doing an amazing job. When someone encourages us, whoo, it is powerful. It brings life and hope. That's as an adult. Do you know the power when we impart encouragement into a kid and to someone younger behind us, following us? I've been talking about this a lot because I just did it, but I, I coached Little League Baseball this year for the first time, like as the head coach, and I was coaching eight-year-olds. I was trying to get them to like understand baseball even a little and do well. And I picked up something about halfway through the season. I changed my vernacular with them a little bit. And the, the phrase that I used the most, more than any other phrase, was a very simple phrase. Dads, you can steal this. I just said, hey, you got this. You got this. You got this. I don't care if you, I don't care if you hit a home run. I don't care if you strike out. I believe in you. You got this. You're going to be a great baseball player. You can do this. You got this. They'd get up there. You got a bat in your hand. You swing hard. You got this. 
you hit it, awesome. If not, that's okay. Your swing got better. You improved. You got this. You got, you know what happened? They started to light up these, these kids as I began to speak life into them. You got this. You got this. And then pretty soon it created a platform where I could say, hey, knock it off. Wait, what would you? Yeah, you got this. Come on. <laughs> right? You can couch some, some heavy correction around some encouragement. When they know you believe in them, when they know that you, we, come on, guys, you know this. When you know someone believes in you, you want to hear from them. You want them to help you and guide you. When it just comes in as a hammer, forget about it. But when you know someone believes in you, you got this, you can do this. So let me just, as a pastor, some of you dads out there that are thinking, oh man, this is too much. You got this. You can do this. So knock off whatever's going on. See, there you go. See how that worked? Like set the table. You guys just walked right into that because it's true. You got this. You do, you can do it. There's all kinds of pictures in the scripture of, 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 of just encouragement that comes through. And one of the, one of the great ones, I, lo- I love this one. It's from 1 Kings chapter 2, and it's David. He's about to die, and he's talking to his son Solomon. Solomon's his biological son from not his initial wife. And he's about to give over the kingdom to him. And David's lived this kind of messy life. And the scripture says he's a man after God's own heart. But he messes up a lot and his family's a mess. But he always comes back to God and repents and gets his heart right. And that's kind of the best we can do, right, guys? We, we, we just come back to God and trust him. And he's, he's passing on kind of this legacy. And, and in 1 Kings 2, he says, it says, When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. They gave a charge to him. He goes, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. And listen to this. So be strong. You got this. Show yourself a man. Observe what the Lord's God requires. Walk in his ways. Keep his decrees and commands. His laws and requirements is written in the law of Moses so that you can prosper in in all you do. And wherever you go, he's like, you got this. You can follow God. You can take the torch. You can run after him. You can do it and you'll prosper and it'll work for you. And he goes, that the Lord may keep his promise to me that if your descendants watch how they live, if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you'll never fail to have a man on the throne in Israel. He's like, Solomon, you got this. Go, do it. Run, trust God, do it. You know, there's probably nothing easier unfortunately, than discouraging someone. And discouraging a kid, whoo, it's an easy thing to do, guys. It is an easy thing to discourage a kid, you know. I was uh, laughing the, uh, about a week ago, maybe a couple weeks ago now. My daughter, she's my, my little champion. She's awesome. She can do anything. She's got this. I hear this breakdown she's in the room with her brothers and I hear this uh-huh, uh-huh, and it was like a heartbreak cry right not a pain cry it's like a heartbreak cry and I come around the corner because I'm like okay which one of these little boys is going to get it and mess with my daughter right I love my boys but come on now that was a heartbreak cry daddy came running and they're playing some Mario game I don't know what it is and she can't figure it out and they're not helping her she's melting down and I'm like okay that's not a big deal but I'm watching her yeah she's doing that and uh, I'm watching her just break down, and I'm like, babe, don't worry. They're a little bit older. They've been playing longer. It's no big deal. And she just goes, I'm never going to be able to do it. And in her six-year-old soul, there was just this discouragement that came in like a wave. Why? Because it's so easy to get discouraged. It is a critical part of our role as family, fathers, men, that we are sources of encouragement. We've got to get this right. We've got to do it. The roadmap starts with be a source of encouragement. You know what's crazy? If you look in the New Testament, the the whole second half of the Bible, post-Jesus, right? If you look in there, the only time that there is direct advice that goes from parent to child, like this is how you deal with your children. The only place in the entire New Testament of the Bible, once there were Christians, the only time that there's ever a conversation, the only sentence about dealing with your children as parents who are followers of Jesus, it's in Ephesians chapter six. It looks like this. It says, fathers, I like, this is a paraphrased version message, but I like the language here. It says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. 
by coming down hard on them. Take them by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. The only advice the entire New Testament gives us, fathers, specifically about dealing with our kids is don't crush their spirit. Don't exasperate them. Don't crush them. And the roadmap that Paul says, when I loved you like, I, like a father loves his children, it opens with encouragement. We have to get this right. That's how important it is. It says, don't exasperate your children. Don't crush their spirit. Don't take away the joy that's in them. You know what? I have been around some exasperated kids. I did years and years of youth ministry. Years and years. And I'll tell you some of the most powerful moments we're at an altar just like this and we're praying. God's breaking through into kids' lives. And I got someone in front of me, a young man or a young woman, and I'm talking to them and I'm praying with them. I said, what, what can I pray for you for? And they'll say something like, nobody believes in me. My parents talk about me like I don't exist, like I'm not gonna ever become anything. My dad said this, my mom said this. This is who I think I can and I'm, you're telling me that I can do more than this, and I've never heard that before. And I've wept and prayed. Why? Because we missed our responsibility in the family to encourage and to speak life. And so generations of young people looking for an identity that they can only find in their heavenly father because they missed it. We missed it, modeling it for them. Fathers, don't exasperate your children by coming down hard on them. Second, he says, he says encourage them. Then he says, comforting. And comforting is kind of a weird one to put in the dad category. Comforting feels a little bit like mom's job, doesn't it, guys? Like, that's the, isn't that the mom responsibility, comforting? No? You guys are like, don't, just look forward, don't nod, don't, <laughs> all right? <laughs> But I, can we be real for a second? It feels like mom's responsibility initially. What is this comforting thing that you talk to? I mean, how, how many times, I'll just be honest, can we just be in my own life? Like, kid comes crying, and, and, and they're like, ah. I'm like, go to your mom. Like, that's, this looks like a mom issue, right? Do you need to lift something heavy? Do you need me to open a jar? Otherwise, go to your mom, right? <laughs> right? But it's a challenge. So, so I'm going to be real with you. Last night, I failed at this epically. Last night. Christine's here. She was working on something, and I had the kids, and I'm feeding them. And I got one kid in particular who's a little bit more of a crier. I won't uh, say his name, Mason, uh, by uh, embarrassing him or anything. But he's, you know, he's my little, my, my emotionally sensitive boy. And we're eating food, and he just makes a mess. Like an unnecessary, like a careless mess. Like if you were two years old and you're just, ah, right? He's just making this mess. And, 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 and it's just like one area in the house that's been recently really cleaned and it just looks beautiful. And, and, and suddenly there's just rice all over the floor and it's just this mess. And I look over and I'm just like, what are you doing? And I could see it like I, I, I came a little too strong, like right off the door. Right? I know right off the bat, I, I came out a little bit too strong, but I was frustrated and I could see him just his little heart just going. Mm. And so then he's a little bit down. And so he's taking his, his spoon. He's like kind of flicking it like in, in dejection, but he actually throws more rice on the floor. <laughs> so some things happen, <laughs> right? I'm just going to be honest with you, right? And I'm getting frustrated and I'm just like, I'm like, you aren't a baby anymore. And I almost said, like, do I need to put you in a high chair? I didn't go that far, right? But I was like, you're not a baby anymore. You're eight, almost eight. You should be able to eat your food without like a puddle of food surrounding you. We don't have a dog. I didn't say that, but, but I was like, like, you have to, this has to work, right? And, and I knew, I knew I was right on the edge where he was gonna break, right? And so I was like, oh, I better come back from the edge of him breaking right here, but it was too late. And so he breaks. And then I have this horrible realization. Mom's not here to solve this. And now I got crying eight-year-old boy and we're trying to eat. And so I did like the, the, the good dad advice. I was like, go to the bathroom and just throw water on your face until you're over it. <laughs> and he listened and he was in there splashing water on his face. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. I sent him in there, not because I needed him to get recovered, because I needed to recover. Because I realized, I was like, okay, he's not gonna be perfect. He's eight. He's not even eight yet. He's almost eight. He's going to get food on the floor. That's okay. And I had to like recover and come back. And then I had to go back last night and talk to him and apologize and comfort him and tell him, hey, your dad's sorry. 
I love you so much. You don't have to be perfect. You just do the best you can. You got this. <laughs> you got this. I knew I was going to have to preach today, so I was like, oh, I got to clean this up. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to stand in front of these people and talk about being comforting and I'm not that guy, right? But here's the thing. We're not perfect. We're not expected to be perfect. It's how you do it. You come back and we learn. And I got off the map and it was like recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. And I had to send him into the bathroom. He's in there crying, just splashing water on his face because I told him that would work. I was like, like, you'll be fine. Just throw some water on your face. (laughs) Hashtag dad fail. (laughs) but I came back and just said, hey, you got this. I believe in you. I want to comfort you. Dads, we're supposed to have a tender side. Somewhere along the line, we forgot that we're supposed to be tender. Somewhere being male became being like a rock that feels nothing and gives nothing away and doesn't doesn't allow anything in. and, and, And that just was not the picture at all through the biblical narrative. Paul says, I mothered. As a father, I comforted. We're supposed to be able to do that. You know, I was thinking about different examples through the scriptures of, of men having a comforting heart. And, you know, it's kind of it funny because I was thinking about uh, 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 Joseph and Mary. And when he finds out that she's pregnant and the behavior that he has towards her, how comforting he is and kind. You know, in in the scriptures, Matthew chapter one, it says, uh, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. That means they haven't been together yet and she's pregnant. That's a problem for him. And at this time, it is every reason for him to publicly shame her, to cast her out. This could end her entire kind of public life could begin in humiliation. It says, but because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to just divorce her quietly and just kind of quietly put her off. Now, of course, that didn't happen because after he considered this, an angel of the Lord showed up in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's gonna give birth to a son and you're gonna give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. His heart and compassion, if you read through their story, the way he protects and cares for Jesus. Can we just be honest? Joseph wasn't planning on being a stepdad. That wasn't the plan out the gate. That wasn't the strategy. He starts his young life right off from the beginning as a stepdad, but he cares for this woman and ultimately their son that he raises, who's Jesus. Joseph had a tender side. You know, when I first started youth pastoring in Spokane, my first or second week there, I'm talking to the lead pastor, my boss, and he makes this comment to me. It's kind of off the wall. He says, there's a girl in our youth program. I'll give her the name Sarah. That wasn't her name. And uh, says, you know, Sarah really, could you, if you see Sarah, would you just stop and give her a hug? She really needs a hug. And I was like, that's kind of a weird ask. You know, I'm a hugger by any ways. In Puerto Rican, we just hug everybody. Hug, 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 right? But it's like a, a greeting. It's like, like the way that, that you shake hands, I just hug, right? Like, like it's a greeting, it's a greeting. It's not really a comforting thing. We don't like, like, Mm, to bring comfort. It's just like a contact thing. Like we're one and we like you, you know, that's it. And, uh, and so it was weird because he's like, when you see Sarah, she's going to need a hug. I said, what's going on? And he said, well, you know, last year her, her mom and dad split and dad moved to Oregon and she's really shut down and mom's concerned. She just doesn't trust any men in her life. And there's been some stuff. And could you just, if you see her, just give her a hug. And I was like, that doesn't feel safe at all, (laughs) but okay, I'll try it. (laughs) You know? And so, so I see Sarah at youth group and I'm like, Sarah, it's great to see you. Come here. And she just locks up like this. And I walk over and I give her a hug and she's just locked. And the moment I let go, she starts crying and she just walks away. I was like, well, that didn't go well. This is how you lose this job, I think. (laughs) Right? I think this is when this job goes the wrong way. And you're like, this doesn't, you know, I guess I'm not going to be doing this much longer. It's crazy because later in life, Sarah has become someone that from far away, I just father her. And Sarah has a little sister who I also fathered through that situation. And her little sister got married. They're older now. They're adults and, and found herself in an abusive re- relationship. And, you know, we 
pulled her out and had her come and stay with us and do life with us. And, and, uh, and we just keep thought, we just invest and go deep and go long because when you share gospel and share your life with people and you give comfort, that's just what you do sometimes. And Sarah's a person in, in my life that I just randomly check in on and love. And, and she would say, and you know, PM's one of my dads. Can't do that for everyone, but that was an assignment. And sometimes that's just what we do. We give comfort because fathers, men, were designed for that. If you think, well, I can't do any of that kind of stuff, well, then you're wrong. Because biblically, the narrative is that's part of the responsibility. We give comfort. The last thing, and we're getting close to landing the plane, don't worry, he says, urging to live a life that's worthy of God. And that's a big way of saying, I call someone into their destiny, into their, their the, the, the best thing for them. And I love that the word urge here, it means to encourage and insist while you instruct, specifically to testify from your own experience. And listen, dads, we love telling our stories. We love telling the same four or five stories over and over and over and over and I mean, come on, that's just part of who we are. We're wired to do that. So wives, women, get used to it. It's not going away. We're gonna tell the same five stories until we die, unless we get a new one and it'll go to six. My wife, she's in the certain room right now and she can testify. She can't even drive around our hometown with me. We grew up in the same town. But if, we, if, we're, if we're home in California driving around, She's like, oh, we're going this way. She knows what story we're gonna tell because if I drive down this street, I'm gonna tell this particular story. It's just how we do things, right? We're hardwired to do it. She's like, I was there. You don't have to tell me the story. I'm like, oh, it's a good one. We're hardwired to do it. And Paul's saying, listen, you have to live your life in such a way that you can urge and tell the story of how to do that for the generation behind you to model it. You call them into that. And Paul does this time and time and time again. All throughout the scripture, he's like, you wanna figure this out? Just kind of live how I lived. See the way I did it and then you do it that way. Is Paul saying he's perfect? No, he's saying I'm doing the best I can. And if you follow that example, it will greatly benefit you. It's a good starting point. Try to do it the way you see me doing it as I try to do it the best I can according to what Jesus has spoken into me. And it gets passed on and it gets passed on and it gets passed on. You have to demonstrate that you have lived it out. Use your life and show the next generation. 1 Corinthians 4, 17, Paul talking about Timothy, who we've been talking about a lot, says, for this reason, I'm sending you Timothy, my son, whom I love. Timothy's not his son, but he's raised and mentored Timothy. And he says, Timothy's my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He'll remind you, listen to this, of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with that that I teach everywhere in every church. He says, listen, there is a model that I am living out following Jesus, living my life as a man who loves God. And Timothy has saw that. So Timothy can now go to you and say, this is the model that we're using. This is how we do it, how we follow God. He's saying, that's how we impart it from generation to generation to generation. Look at my life. I'm modeling it. There's something incredibly cool when we see the next generation modeling our behavior. Sometimes it's dangerous. You hear your kids say something, you're like, where did you hear that? Then you're like, okay, you only talk to like four people. And two of them are in the room right now. So between you and me, which one of us said that thing that they just repeated, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> it's dangerous. But there's something really cool when you see your kids modeling your behavior, right? When I see, when I see honestly, Mia, when I see Mia's baseball swing, her swing's just like my swing, right? She's modeling it. I've passed on this behavior to her. I'm working with her. She's doing it. She's, she's six, and she's got the most beautiful swing. It's something incredible. Paul's saying that model what you've seen. You know, it's funny, it's about, about four years ago, one of my former youth group kids, uh, his name is Pat. Uh, he wouldn't care if I use him as this example, but Pat is a pastor up at a big church north of Seattle, and he's, uh, he's like number two up there covering all their small groups and stuff, just knocking out of the park for Jesus. And I haven't seen Pat very much since he graduated high school, went off to college and stuff. I keep in contact with him every once in a while. I married one of my other youth group girls. But anyways, Pat was preaching, and the service was online. 
And so I was like, oh, this is cool. I get to hear Pat preach. I've never actually heard him as an adult preach. You know, I had him preach for me a bunch when he was in youth group, but not as a grown-up preach. And it was, uh, it was going into the Christmas season, so it was some Christmas-related message. And so, uh, so I pop it on, and I'm listening to it. And Pat starts talking, and he's all fired up. And he's like, come on, somebody. And I was like, hey, Pat's stealing my line. Hey, Pat, that's, that's how I do that. That sounds just like me. And at first I was like defensive. I was like, get your own. Like, like, and I was like, oh, wait, that is his own. Because he grew up seeing that and hearing that and modeled what he saw. And he sounds like me. That's hilarious. I was like, oh, you could have done so much better. <laughs> right? He's doing great. He sounds like me. It's crazy. It's impressive, and it's just the way that Jesus makes things work. I can tell you story after story, but a generation looking for someone to model. And Paul says, that's your role, fathers, men. He says, you got to call people into the life that God has for them by living it and saying, here's the story. Do it the way I am doing it. Some of you are wondering, gentlemen, where you fit in in all this. Well, let me just give you the examples that I just gave you. David was imparting to Solomon, who was his biological kid, but not by his first wife. Messy family dynamics, but he was passing on that legacy. Joseph, Joseph was tasked with raising a child that was not his own child. He was in a not a foster relationship, but a, uh, definitely a step relationship. And some of us, some of us are interacting with the next generation and there are biological kids like David to Solomon. Some of us are interacting with the next generation and, and we've been called to kind of either be a step parent or a foster parent or interact in that way. Paul is writing to Timothy, who's just his protege, someone younger than him who hasn't experienced all the life that he's experienced and he's imparting to him behind and he says, you've become a son for me. So I don't care what season of life you're in, you're not off the hook. This picture of, of biblical fatherhood is all of our responsibility. Why? Because we were created in the image of God and God relates to us as a father. We carry it. Dads have a big responsibility. You know, I was thinking about, earlier I mentioned Jesus, when he taught us to pray, he said, say, our father who art in heaven. And there's just no getting around. You can't say our father in heaven and not have a picture of your father for a second there, right? As we're learning that. So men, we have a tremendous responsibility to father a generation because their first picture of faith in God is gonna be connected to their father. Now God can redeem all that. He did it for me. But we have a responsibility because eyes are watching us. And if we want them to be able to relate to their heavenly father, we better be modeling how to do that here. We uh, live in a culture that's surrounded by homes that have lost their fathers. We just do. And some of you would say, well, Pastor Mike, that's just the way it is now. It's no big deal. Okay. I just know that according to the Census Bureau, there's about 20 million kids going to bed every day with no father in the house. About 20 million so you know somebody who needs to be fathered. You just do. Gentleman who needs someone to say, I'll take you on as a protege. I'll take you into my world. I'll invest. I'll pour in to you. One in four to get to that 20 million number. One in four kids under the age of 18. One in four raised without a father. So what? What difference does that make? That's just normal. That's what culture is right now. Well, here's the so what. Fatherless daughters... 111% more likely to have kids as a teenager. 111%. Fatherless sons, 300% more likely to become incarcerated as a teen. 300% fatherless sons. Fatherless children in general, two times as likely to drop out of high school. The family's always been a critical part of God's plan. However you define it, it's always been a critical part of God's plan that men and women would pour into the next generation, investing in them, raising them, shaping them. And some of you are starting to get a little mad at me because you're like, I don't know, I'm not up to this task. 
Like you're just putting it out there. Don't put this weight on me, Pastor Mike. It's hard to figure out how to do this when we feel like we're not up to the task. Just want you to remember one simple thing. You're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He created us in his image. He designed us. You're like, I don't even like people. It's okay. You were still designed to encourage. You were still designed (laughs) to be compassionate. You were still designed to urge people towards Jesus, however your world works. And some of you are like, well, you don't understand. I've never seen the roadmap. How can I call someone to direct them where they're supposed to go? I didn't even experience this roadmap. I don't know where I'm going. Can I just give you some practical, pragmatic truth? Your attention is worth more than your advice anyways. As a guy who spent some 15 plus years in youth ministry and teen world and just as a dad, your attention is worth more than your advice. Some of you should not give advice. I'm just saying. (laughs) But you could give attention and compassion and encouragement and we'll develop the the advice thing, right? But you could give attention. You could be in their world. We need a generation of men that haven't lost their passion to father. We just need it. We need it. Our world needs it. Our church needs it. Our neighborhood needs it. Your family needs it. And there's something that's happened. It's like the enemy has just tried to stomp out this passion to father. That somehow that's been created as a negative thing, this passion, this desire to father. And it's like, I don't get in my world. Leave me alone. And we're just like, okay, fine. We've cashed out of that responsibility. But we're called to father, all of us, gentlemen. And we're called a mother in there a little bit too, which means moms, you're not off the hook on any of this stuff that I just said anyways, even though I've been talking to the dads a lot. Just saying. We're called to do it. But it's like the enemy wants this fire that we're supposed to have to do this and accomplish it to just go out. He wants to snuff that out. And so my challenge for you today is to reignite that fire to Father. And if you'd stand with me, I'm gonna pray here and just let us go, but... I'm gonna give you a gift today, dads. And it's a different kind of gift. I haven't given away anything this dangerous, I don't think, before. But it's for the dads and the men. So I don't know what that means other than good luck. I feel less responsible for you if you can't figure it out. <laughs> but I'm gonna give you a gift. And so it's gonna be at each door as you walk out. Gentlemen, please all, all take one. But it's a weird looking thing. And it's in a little tiny wrapper. So it doesn't look like what it is until you unwrap it. But I didn't want to unwrap it and make a big mess and get them all tangled. But what it is, is uh, it looks like this. And it's actually a, a flint striker. And it's the ability to make fire. We're in the series called Equipped. And, and I want to give you a tool to kind of remind you that part of your responsibility is to light a fire to start a spark, Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 1 when he's talking to Timothy, and I like this version. It says, this is why I remind you to help God's gift grow. Just as a small spark, there it is, grows into a fire. God put his gift in you when I placed my hands on you. Paul's saying, I deposited into you some of the fire, some of my fire, and now you got it, and you get to run with it. And so my hope is every time you see this, you'll be struck. Now, here's the thing. It comes with a little, uh, a little striker, but uh, first service, it didn't make a big enough spark. So I was like, all right, fine. I'll just do it with my knife because that's how men do things. They make it a little more dangerous and less responsible. But <laughs> it's a little striker just like this, right? And all you got to do is take your little leverage on it and make some spark. How cool is that? That's way better than first service, by the way. <laughs> Don't worry, the insurance is good. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. Number one, I have this irrational fear that someday I'll be driving and I'll fall asleep and I'll wake up in the woods and need to be able to make fire. And so my recommendation is put it in your car somewhere where you'll see it, right? Oop, don't drop it. It's got a hole on there. You could put it on a keychain, something like that. But my hope is this, gentlemen, that when you see this, you'll just be reminded that you have a role and that you'll be passionate for that role because as a follower of Jesus, you're called to live in the image of an everlasting father. You are. It's what we do. Now, the world wants to tell you that's all kinds of different things, but the scriptural roadmap says you can be a point of encouragement 
What if we just were intentional about, I'm going to find a spark. I'm going to find an opportunity to get with someone. It's like, you got this. You got this. You got this. You can do it. You got this. And speak life and encouragement. If there was a desire in us to give just some kind of, come on now, compassion in a way that would just blow it away and say, hey, you know what? We're going to be gentle and kind. And it's okay to try a little tenderness. And then we understood the awesome responsibility we had to keep our spark going so we can urge people, call them to the life that God has for them. We can be a part of that. That's how it's supposed to work. It doesn't matter what your family looks like. Your family is whoever you're called to serve, whoever you choose to serve. My prayer is that we'd be passionate as fathers. So Jesus, thank you so much. Thanks for giving us a roadmap and not leaving us without a picture of how to make this work. Thanks for giving us a practical and pragmatic, simple set of instructions of what that looks like. And I just pray for a generation of fathers who are on fire to just encourage and to care for and comfort and who were on fire to, to, to demonstrate that you can do this. And I'm doing the best I can. And sometimes I fail. And when I fail, I go and I make it right. Because that's what being blameless is. It's like I, I dealt with it. I didn't, I don't have, there's no charge against me. I handled it. And we set an example. And can you imagine the impact that might have in our immediate family, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our world, if we just cared and got a hold of this? We could change the narrative about fatherhood. We could if we just did this we want to be like you. We want to carry this truth forward. So we thank you. We praise you. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.